The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. It's great to see you all here this morning. This is a day for worshiping our Lord God, and I invite you to stand. Let's give him all of our praise. Amen. What a beautiful Savior we serve. His posture towards us is always of open arms, welcoming us into a walk with him, deep life with him. And that's also the posture we're meant to have with each other, that as we welcome Christ into our life and he has his rightful place, we welcome others into our lives and just give them whatever God has given us. So we're thankful that God is with us always, and we're thankful that we can be together and worship him. So uh, welcome here. If you're new to our church family, we'd love for you to take time to fill in the welcome card that's in the chair in front of you, or even go on to our uh, church app, download the app, and on there you will find everything you need to know about what's happening in the church, and especially you'll want to look at the bottom where it says news and register, because when you hear of things happening, that's where you go just to follow up on information and to sign up. So if you're new to the church, we'd love for you to come to a, a lunch after church on Sunday, October the 16th. And so that would be right after the service. So please go online and sign up for that. And our Growing in Grace, which is our seniors ministry, has a lunch the second uh, Thursday of the month. So October the 13th, and it's going to be a Thanksgiving and a hymn sing. And so if you'd like to sign up for that, please go online. But we also, for the next two weeks, have a table in front of the Resource Center where you can go and sign up that way. So please do so by next Sunday, which is the deadline for signing up. I just want to give you a little save the date for October 21st to 23rd. This is going to be our first missions weekend here at the church, and we're going to just celebrate what God has been doing to enlarge our heart for the nations, for all the people he loves, and how that's been impacting and being shown in our church family. So the 21st is our youth, so that's they, they're going to be focused on missions, and the 22nd is the main event here at the church. And the first thing is our men's and women's event that starts at 10 o'clock. So if you sign up for this, you're going to come get a nice fresh cinnamon bun, a cup of coffee, and you're going to hear from two great speakers. Uh, they're a couple, Pastor Calvert and his wife, Sylvan. They're from the Truth and Life Church, the, ch the church that was going to buy Skirfield. Uh, they, they, we've kept relationship with them, and they're going to come and share about the gospel and the globe. And after that time together, the women will be in one area, the men in another. We're going to have a combined lunch. And then anybody else who wants to join, come for that lunch as well. And in the afternoon, we're going to have a panel discussion that's from people within our own church talking about how Christ has impacted them through the culture. And then we're going to have a little cultural presentation as well. So that's Saturday. And then Sunday after church, if you'd like to sign up, there's going to be a Kairos blanket exercise. And that's just to help us learn a little bit about the history of Canada and our indigenous people and just how we can prayfully move forward in healthy relationships. So please go online, look at that form. The only thing you, you need to pay for are the meals. Everything else is included. But on Sunday morning, we do want to have a, a little bit of a flag parade. When you come into the church and you see those beautiful flags, we didn't just go buy flags on Amazon and pop them up there. Each flag represents someone in our church saying, that was my first home. And we know that there's more people who say, there's a first home that I'd like represented on that wall. And if you could let us know, uh, today would be great because we need to go buy those flags. And we would just want to add those to the celebration of what God's doing in our church family. So you can go online, fill in the form, or you can talk with Emmy Drisky. She's going to be by the Resource Center after the service. 
So, good news, man. Like, these are going a lot hot, like hotcakes. It's so good to see the people saying, I want a Bible journal. Someone came out after the message last week and said, man, the service goes fast when you're taking notes. We have 30 copies left. We will buy more. We want each of you to have a rich relationship with God as you go through Matthew and have the joy of saying, now I have something that I feel I can share with people too, whether it's in our church or whether it's your neighbor. So please buy yourself a journal. And this Wednesday is the start of Come to the Table. That's our church family meal. And it's really important that if you'd like to come, that you sign up today by the end of the day so that we know how much food to buy tomorrow. Because prep starts Tuesday night and Wednesday afternoon. So please go online. It's going to be a Ukrainian focus, this first meal. Meals serve between 5.30, 6.30. And we're hoping that afterwards you will choose to linger here longer to develop relationships. So those of you who have younger children, we're gonna have the children's area available for you to just have your kids play, talk with each other. But the main thing that we're gonna ask outside of that is for discipleship groups. And those are just tables, whether you can come once or all eight times, you're always welcome to a discipleship group. And our hope is to have groups of three, three to six friends around a table, and the tables sit eight. And when you come in, if you're just looking to make new friends, you can just find a spot, sit down, and you know that people want to talk with you. They want to hear about Christ through your life. And so please come, and we'll be exploring what it means to have those kind of friendships together through these discipleship groups. Some of you can't attend on Wednesdays, and you said, you know what, Tuesday or a Thursday is better. So this week, for Tuesday, Thursday at 7 o'clock, I'll be here in the foyer, we're in the solid grounds area, and I'd love to meet with any of you who say Tuesday night works for me or Thursday. We'll meet whoever's there together. We'll have a wonderful time of just sharing about Christ, and then we'll figure out next steps about if you meet in a home or if you want to continue meeting at the church. So again, for all these things, please go online and fill in the registration form. Uh, the last thing to talk about today is we're getting used to new life in the building with the numbers of people here all of a sudden remembering, you know, there's certain things we need to remember like fire safety plans. So for our children, it's hugely important that we have a plan that if something was to happen, the children could get out of the building safely. So they're doing a fire drill today. And what they've asked of us is that we just inform you that we all need to be prepared if something was to happen, that there's a plan in place. And for those of you who are ushers, there's going to be further training on this as well. But right now, if you look around the room, you're going to see these little green signs above the main doors. What we'd ask of you is if something was to happen and we need to leave, that you find the door that's closest to you and go out that door outside. And when you get outside, there's a few main muster points and you'd see a sign. It looks like it's a gathering place. But the main thing we need you to hear today is if you're a parent and you're concerned about your children, the best thing that you can do for them is to leave the building safely and let the workers bring the children out safely and they're going to be bringing them to the area that's gated over there and there will be a wonderful process to find your children safely. It won't go well if you run to go get them. So please just remember, whatever your heart's saying in that, just say, oh, remember, leave the building and, and we'll make sure that your children are safe. And then also don't get in cars and start driving away because <laughs> there could be children on the street. So anyways, um, today we are again just so happy to be here together. I'm going to invite Dave Barton up. Dave is our moderator. The board directs and protects our church. They're such great people, and Dave leads them. He's a wonderful man. I'm glad he can come and share this morning. Well, thanks, Doug. I guess now I don't have to introduce myself. Thank you. So, good morning, church. 
Did you, did you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? And God has blessed us with some amazing pastors, and they constant, constantly demonstrate their love for us and their love for the Lord as they serve and lead us in this church. And we should always be constantly thankful for them and express our appreciation to them. This is once a year just to remind us that we have a responsibility to support those who God has placed in spiritual leadership over us. And I know that many of you do show that appreciation year-round, and, and I've seen some uh, creative ways for you to express that. I encourage you to continue that. If you haven't expressed your appreciation to our pastoral staff recently, think about that between, uh, you know, this month is a good time to think about that. You don't have to necessarily bless them with something this month. Christmas is coming. They have birthdays. There are the dark days of winter all year round. Think of ways to bless and express your appreciation to our pastors. And matter of the fact, the Bible encourages us to do that. These are just a few verses uh, from the Bible that express how we're to respect, esteem, honor, remember, and give thanks for our pastors. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very high in love because of their work, and be at peace amongst yourselves. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we're to honor all our pastoral staff. If they're leading us well, they get double honor. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I think that's very fitting given the summer series we've had to say, follow me as I follow Christ. I think we have some great examples in our pastors that we can follow as they follow Christ. And we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that last verse, those last three points, I think there's a great sermon there. I don't have time to preach it this morning, so I will just encourage all of us to continue in prayer for all of our pastors and all of our staff. We've been blessed with so many great uh, staff members, lay leaders, and we want to be praying for one another, but especially considering this month our pastors. And uh, I encourage you to uh, constantly keep them in your prayers. And it's one of the most important ways that we can support our pastors. We want to verbally and, and in tangible ways express our appreciation, but that prayer support, God is lifting them up when we're supporting them in prayer. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge the important role that family plays in the life of a pastor, and especially the role of a pastor's wife. They're often the unsung heroes behind that successful, beloved pastor that we see. They're the ones that are encouraging and supporting and affirming when some of us might not be doing that to the extent that we should be. So when you pray for our pastors, please remember their spouses and their families. And would you please join me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed. We are blessed in so many ways in this land to have the freedom to gather here this morning. We have the freedom to speak your name, to worship you freely, to share you with others. Lord, we pray that uh, those freedoms continue in this land. And today especially, we want to uh, thank you for those you've placed in spiritual leadership amongst us. We want to lift them up, Lord, that you would sustain them 
in the work that you've given them to do, that we pray that we would be supportive and encouraging, express our gratitude and love to them on a regular basis, and not just to them, but to their spouses and families, Lord, who help carry that burden that some of us don't even see. But you know us there, Lord, and you know the heart of each pastor, each staff member, and we pray that you will continue to meet them in those needs, that, Lord, you would use us to be an encouragement and a help, to come alongside and to support our pastors, and, Lord, to keep them in our prayers, that you would put a hedge of protection around them and their families as they seek to minister here among us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I can, I can speak on behalf of all of the, the staff when I say how grateful we are for how much and how well this church family loves and supports us. And uh, we love you right back. And uh, we also appreciate your prayers. Uh, it's just good to be church family serving the Lord together. So thank you all for that. Um, this morning we're going to be spending time during the sermon in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at what it is to live a life that is humbly inclined towards seeking God and at the same time humbly inclined towards loving others. And our human spirit does not do that naturally. And the world does not tell us to do that as well. Uh, the Holy Spirit guides us in that. And we can do that if we are secure. The more we are secure and just knowing that what we need, we have from Jesus. Jesus gives us what we need. He supports us and carries us. And, uh, and whatever else is happening around us, we can boldly be inclined to loving God and boldly be inclined to love others in the world, even when it's, when it's hard. And so this morning, we're going to be singing songs just about the sufficiency of God in our lives and that we can truly lean on Him. And maybe you're somebody this morning that just needs to be reminded of that, that you can truly lean on Jesus no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life. Because in a room as big as this, as full as this, there's a lot of different stories happening and God's enough for every one of us. And I invite us to stand and let's sing these songs of praise to him together. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, IVK. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
We have just read from the words of Jesus the description of a blessed life. And this morning we're going to be studying that. And uh, some of you will have... um, Right, here we go. Some of you will have this um, journal in your, in your possession and you can take notes uh, today and then through the week when you meet with a group, whether it's on Wednesday night or some other evening, you can bring those notes and share in what the Lord has been teaching you. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned um, the concept of worldview. And uh, a worldview is defined as a pair of glasses that you look at reality through how you see the world. It's the picture on the, backs of a, on the box of a jigsaw puzzle. And uh, it helps you see the big picture and then all the aspects, the little parts of life can fit together because you see the big picture. <clears throat> and that's really important when you're putting a jigsaw puzzle together. And uh, similarly, it's, it's this idea of the reality of the framework in which you understand life. And uh, there are typically five big questions that have to be answered in any worldview. One of them has to do with your origin. Where did I come from? Another one, your identity. Who really am I? And then your meaning in life. What is the purpose for which I am on this earth? Then the morality issue. How should I live when I'm on this earth? And then finally, your destiny. What happens after I die? These are enormous questions. These are huge questions, and a worldview should answer these questions. And we believe that as Christians, through the Word of God, we have answers to all five of these big questions. As far as looking at origin, I know that we were created in the image of God, and Psalm 139, your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed body. You you knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, That's my origin. God is the one who created me. The identity that I have, who am I? Well, I'm I'm created in the image of God. I'm I'm not the result of random forces of evolutionary molecular structures happening by chance. I'm I'm this incredible forethought person created after the likeness of my creator, God, and I have this incredible identity. And then, of course, my meaning in life is to just to know him and, and to be so walking in him that I can make him known to others because others need to know him. And I want my life to reflect him, his glory, his beauty in every way. And then what is my morality issue? Well, how, do I, how should I live? Well, my life should, should somehow follow the pattern that he sent to earth, his son, Jesus Christ, who lived and walked among us. And I, my goal in life is to become as Christ-like as I can by his presence in me through his spirit. And then finally, what is my ultimate destiny? The Bible teaches that for those who are followers of Jesus, we are going to be with him forever forever with the Lord, to be absent from the body, to be with the Lord. Our souls, that immaterial part of us, are eternal, and we have the opportunity of coming into knowing him and being with him. I share these five questions again because, first of all, the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, are written with the assumption of a, world, a Christian worldview, okay? So when we read this, we know that Jesus had this worldview. And secondly, I say it because the biggest question that's being answered here is the fourth question. 
The entire Sermon on the Mount is answering the fourth question. It is, how should I live? How should I live if I'm one of these God-created, image-bearing, redeemed-by-Jesus-Christ people that I'm, I'm on this earth for? What, what are the things that I should be doing in my life? This is the, the expose for Jesus' followers. He is telling us kingdom ethics. He is telling us how to live. That's why we call this series Walking the Path of Kingdom Values. We're going to study what Jesus has to say about how to live in this world. And we're going to find out that it's countercultural. It's not the way that the world is patterning and calling us to live. It's countercultural. And so that means that if you're seeking to be a follower of Jesus, you will find yourself at odds with the world around you. It's not maybe, it's going to happen. You will find your life at odds with the world around you. That means that the books that are being written, the movies that are being watched, the laws that are being passed, the jokes that are being told, they will not land on you and, and just find agreement. They should chafe. They should bother you. They, they, they grate against your, your core value because you're not part of this world. You're, a, you're an exile in this world. Many years ago, in 1978, an author by the name of John Stott wrote a, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He called it Christian Countercultural. He wrote this in the introduction. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. So as Jesus is thinking about preparing a people on this earth that at the last verse of Matthew 28 is said, go now and make disciples of the nations, these are the qualities and the characteristics of the kind of people that he wants to send to the world to be his ambassadors. So you have an opportunity this morning in this quick sermon on eight different qualities to see how you measure up in being blessed and in being able to be an ambassador of Jesus. John Stott defends the title counterculture because he says that the entire theme of the Bible is that God is calling a people out of this world and uh, to, be, to belong to him. He says that Matthew 6 verse 8 is the key verse of the entire sermon when it says, do not be like them, the people of this world. I kind of chose, chose a different theme verse. If we had to choose one, I would say Matthew 7, 14, where it says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And so this is a hard way, but this is the way of Jesus. John Stott even says that we're called out of the world to be different than the secular world, but we're also called out to be different than the nominal church. In other words, it could be a scary thought for you this morning that the Sermon on the Mount calls you to be different than the average churchgoer. This is a call to discipleship. And um, Matthew gives us the context in chapter 5. Let's take a look at this sermon. And in chapter 5, it says, verse 1, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. The most important observation that we must make on this sermon, first of all, is that he is talking to his disciples. 
Now the crowds came to him. There were a whole bunch of people that were there that were not yet his followers, but the crowds came to him, and he was talking to those who had already decided to become his followers. That's the way Jesus lived his public ministry. There were always other people around. Just like on any given Sunday morning, there might be people among us who have not yet decided that Jesus Christ is their true north, and they're going to follow him. And that's okay. In fact, what better way of exploring the Christian faith and the teaching of Jesus than to gather with the community of faith that says he's the one. We just sang about it. Incredible words in the worship songs this morning. We're saying he's the one. There's no one better than him. Well, as the people that don't yet believe in him stand or sit among us, they should see not only in our teaching but in our lives. Why is that so? Why is he so important? And so... You might ask yourself this morning, we're calling this the Sermon on the Mount, but isn't it kind of different than the average sermon, the way we think of a sermon today? And the answer is, yeah, probably. You can read the Sermon on the Mount in 10 minutes. I haven't preached a 10-minute sermon for a long time. (laughs) Don't say anything. And uh, so, yeah, most people think that this is a gathered summary of this mountain retreat that Jesus took his disciples on. And then Matthew edits it down to three chapters here, this 10-minute read that we have and we're going to look at from now till Christmas. And so, you know, in fact, the Sermon on the Mount, that term, where did it come from? It's not in the Bible text. It's from St. Augustine, 300 years after the time of Jesus. So so it's something that was laid upon it. So don't think of it as a sermon as such. Let's move into the scripture that we're looking at this morning, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll maybe look at this and maybe even your Bible says that it's called the Beatitudes. And where does that word come from, the Beatitudes? The word beatus is from Latin, which means, which means blessed. This is the eight statements that Jesus gives of what the characteristics of a follower of him are to look like, the blessed life. And... Um, Jesus is saying things here that really kind of go against what we often think of as a blessed life. Um, I was in a conversation recently in a group of people when a wise older woman among us uh, was talking about how this word blessed is used so much out of context that we refer to it as the comforts of this world, you know. It was a good harvest. Oh, God blessed us. Or we, we, uh, you know, didn't have to pay the phone bill this year. Oh, I don't know, whatever it is. We're blessed, you know. Whatever it might be, and we, we kind of belittle that word as if God doesn't bless when something... Well, if you take a look at these words, that blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the persecuted. This is not our way of understanding the word blessed. And when was the last time you heard someone say to someone that was showing mercy, boy, he's blessed. Because he's merciful? We need to re-examine how we use this word. Now I want you to know this is not a road map to get God's favor. It is a declaration of God's grace that is at work in the life of every person who's received Christ. And the Holy Spirit begins the renovation of the heart. So this is, this is a statement that Jesus is saying is, is what God's goal for us are. There's not going to be one person in heaven that doesn't fully adorn these eight qualities. Okay? And so this is the kingdom qualities 
Jesus has spread an eight-course meal before us. And if you're going to sit down and dine with him, you need to agree on the menu. You need to agree on these things. And if there is something, he's not going to force you to the table. He invites you to come to the table. And if you're going to chafe against these things, if you're not going to agree with these eight things, then I have to say to you, you're not invited to the table. In fact, I want to say it really clear, when we gather around the table a little later on in the service, if these eight statements grate against your spirit, your intellect, your mind, your heart, I would prefer you don't take the bread and the cup. This is a kingdom call, these eight statements. Jesus is giving a summary view of his entire existence on earth and why he's come. This is the gospel. And not everybody is welcome. Does that sound awful? Oh, everybody's welcome, but it is on his terms you come to this table. These are hard statements. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, said, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people of this world, and their call to come forth from the people of this world becomes increasingly manifest. If you have your Bibles open in Matthew 5, let's take a look at the eight Beatitudes. They follow a natural progression, and I want you to see that the first four describe a right attitude toward God, and the, the last four describe a right attitude toward other people. Now, maybe you've never looked at the Beatitudes this way. Maybe you've just seen them as this long, long run-on sentence, but God, Jesus is really clear about what he's describing in this progression this aligns with how Jesus often taught and how he summed up all of his teaching. One time he said in Matthew 22 that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Same, same, same pairing here. The first four beatitudes, your attitude toward God. The other four, the next four, your attitude toward other people. Jesus is giving us the shape of theology here. And uh, it's, it's found throughout Scripture. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, I will bless you and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. We see all of theology described in terms of two big arrows, don't we? The arrow down, you will be blessed. Why? So that you can be a blessing. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth and he says, you'll be made rich in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. You see, it's the shape of Scripture, folks. It's the shape of world missions. God comes down and blesses a people so that they can be a blessing to the rest of this earth and disciple the nations. So Jesus, in the Beatitudes, is taking the shape of theology and he's giving us a clear indication of what we're called to. Let's take a look at the first four Beatitudes. I know we'll have to move quickly. Let's take a look at the first four that describe our attitude toward God. First of all, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins on the bottom rung of the ladder. As Jesus describes entrance to the kingdom of God, he tells us that the way up is down. He tells us that, that the way up is down. 
He contradicts human expectation and appeals not to self-righteous or self-sufficient or rich or mighty, but to the poor. And he clearly is making a statement, it's not poor materially, but poor in spirit. This is not a call to a vow of poverty like some of the monks in the Middle Ages thought. Jesus is saying those who are poor in spirit. None, no human behavior can gain merit here. This is just acknowledging what is. That every one of us stand before God bankrupt. It means to be spiritually bankrupt. To recognize you have nothing to offer God. You realize you have no righteousness, no goodness in yourself that God is impressed with. Nothing that God looks upon and says, wow, I want him on my team. The moral fiber of you and I is sinful. You are a pauper. You are a beggar. You are a skid row, destitute human that needs mercy. And everything that you could ever need from God comes from God. You need to acquire everything that God requires from God. Because you're destitute, you're bankrupt, you're poor in spirit. In the biblical terms, you're a sinner. And if you can begin there, then God says the kingdom of heaven can be yours. That's where God begins, by his grace. Of course, the next logical step is that once you've realized how absolutely poor you are, you mourn. And so Jesus says next, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning and recognize that something happened overnight, that the entire market, world market economy collapsed, that everything crashed, all your equity funds, your mutual funds, your guaranteed investment contracts, your, your bear, interest-bearing accounts, all the things that you counted on, they're nothing. The banks can't honor them. They're worth zero. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning and you realize that the house you lived in isn't even around you because Hurricane Fiona or Ian or somebody else came along and it just swept through Manitoba like a threshing machine and left everything a disaster and the entire government of Canada can't even help you. If you could just wake up tomorrow morning and recognize that everything that you have trusted in is no more. Nothing is of any value. Your future plans are shattered. The first thing that you're going to do with that realization is mourn. That's the first response. You're going to cry. You're going to grieve. That's what Jesus is teaching here. When you come to, to grips with the real reality of how you stand before a holy God poor in spirit, when you have that realization come upon your mind and heart, the only response is grief. And it's not just a, a grief of bereavement because you've lost something precious. It's the grief of a godly sorrow that wants to bring repentance and get right with this God whom you've offended. And this mourning has its, has its important expression coming out of poverty of spirit. You know, perhaps we Christians make much of grace, but maybe we make a little bit too small of sin. Paul talks about godly sorrow. There was a missionary to the indigenous peoples of America in the 18th century named David Brainerd. David Brainerd writes in his journal on October the 18th, 1740, 
these words. He says, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness of my life. How do we, how do, do we mourn over the gravity of our sin? God promises to comfort that kind of mourning. God promises to meet you. Jesus teaches us that when a person comes to be poor in spirit, they grieve, and he promises that people that grieve that way, they're going to be comforted. They're going to be comforted. There's hope. Though it looks so bleak because you've been made aware of your sin, there's hope. There's comfort. I remember in a former church that I pastored, we were singing the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Some of you older folks will remember that hymn. And this member came up to me at the end of the song and he said, what's with this worm theology? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And I guess that offended the pride of this certain church member. What's this worm theology? I don't know if he could sing Amazing Grace either. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, somebody in the last hundred years rewrote the first hymn and said, instead of a worm, like, it, 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 it was rewritten to say, <clears throat> would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? I don't know, but I don't stumble over this. Am I weird? I don't stumble over the, the total depravity of me. I know what I'm capable of. Sin doesn't surprise me. There's nothing that you could do and come to me as a pastor and tell me that's going to surprise me. I am surprised enough at my own sin. I remember in a former church, I had a woman that phoned me up and said, Pastor, could you come over for tea? She was about 78 or 79. And, and she, I said, sure, sure, I'll come over. I went over for tea. I could tell something was bothering her. And we sat down and we had tea. And finally, she got to the point and she said, there's something I need to tell you that I've never told any other human soul. This woman had been married for about 50 years before her husband died. And she had not even told this to her husband. And she told me in those moments in tears that before she was married as about a 20-year-old woman, she had an affair with a married man. And nobody had ever heard of it. She hadn't told anyone. And I was so glad that on that day I could comfort her with true comfort. Because blessed are the mourn over their sin. They will be comforted. That I could tell her that day that she does not need to rise up in shame or guilt or bad memory of that anymore, that Jesus has forgiven her. And a few years later when I did her funeral, I had a thought in my mind that nobody else had of this woman. And she was now robed in the glorious, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. I don't know why worm theology is so unfashionable in this day and age. Jesus is saying to us through this beatitude, 
if you could get a grip on the reality of your sinful condition, you would cry. By the grace of God, like an iceberg, we only see the top one-tenth of a consciousness of our sin. God sees the whole thing and still sent his son to, to die. And of course, if you have this mourning and you know you're going to be comforted, it leads to this next beatitude, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is an incredible outcome of this mourning over your sin. You become such a meek person. It means gentle. It's hard to translate actually from the Greek. It's a gentleness. A truly meek person is amazed that God would even look at them, that God would forgive them, that God would love them. And, and they're hard people to offend because they see themselves from the inside out and so they don't have any problem when you don't maybe treat them well. They're meek. They understand. They see themselves from the inside out. And the result is incredible sensitivity, incredible gentleness of spirit. A meek person is the one who's content to leave all their rights to God. All their rights they leave in God's hands. And so, it's interesting that Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> you know, in this world, you see a lot of people fight for their inheritance. And Christians are told, Jesus is our inheritance, and all that is his is mine, and I don't need to fight. It doesn't require might to inherit, it requires meekness, according to Jesus these three Beatitudes set up the next one in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In this Beatitude, we see the followers of Jesus not only renounce their rights, but their righteousness. So they're not only giving up their rights, they're giving up their own righteousness. They understand Isaiah when he says that my righteousness is before God like filthy rags. They recognize how shallow of a veneer is our goodness and righteousness. Like the song I quoted last week when it talks about, I am a sinner, if it's not one thing, it's another. And he is a savior. The spiritual hunger like this cannot be faked. It's a characteristic of every follower of Christ. And when we're unhealthy physically, we can sometimes lose our appetite and our thirst. And when we're unhealthy spiritually, we stop hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. We become anemic Christians. No thirst. But the Bible teaches us that a healthy child of God longs for the pure milk of the word because we've tasted that the Lord is good. And so this hunger and thirst for righteousness is a desire for what is morally right before God, what is ethically right in our dealings with other people, what is socially right in a just and fair society. This is a righteousness that extends to every area of living, all dimensions of human life. And it's so strong, this hunger and thirst, when God gets a hold of you, that it supersedes every self-serving hunger that we have naturally in our lives. And so when you're in the parking lot and you open the door and the wind grabs and it smacks the car next to you, you don't look around and see if anybody was looking and then sneak off. No, you want to do what's right. And when you're walking your dog and he poops on the sidewalk, you don't look around and see if anybody's looking. You pull out the plastic bag. You do what's right, you know. 
And when you're off in a hotel room and you've got unfiltered TV and internet access and nobody's going to know whatever you did that night, you don't go ahead and do the wrong thing. You do the right thing. Why? Because this hunger and thirsting for righteousness is so strong on you that it supersedes other hungers and thirsts and desires. And there could be a whole list of other examples of how this hungering and thirsting after righteousness leads us to overcome. But you do not acquire it without being poor in spirit and mourning and meek. Let's move on to the second four Beatitudes. Now the ones that go out from us in our relationship with God toward the people that are around us And again, let me remind you that this shape also reminds us of the way that God transforms us, Romans 12, 2, the transformation, the metamorphosis. First of all, it starts on the inside and works toward the outside. You, your right right attitude toward God starts to result in a right attitude toward other people. And the first one is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be receiving mercy. This is clearly an outward virtue felt by those around you. And Being merciful means that you have understanding, you have compassion for somebody else that's made a mistake, not judgment. That's merciful. The reason that this is the first one is because nothing proves more clearly that you've been forgiven and you know it than the ability to extend forgiveness to someone else. And if you've gone through the first four Beatitudes and, you're, and God is working on you, the renovation of the heart's taking place, that extension of mercy towards someone else, that's not a problem. God forgave me of this much, I can forgive you of this much. That's the way it works. And so each of us have known people who've extended mercy to us when we were ashamed, when we were guilty, when we ex- expected rejection or judgment. Didn't that feel good? Think about a time. Doesn't mercy feel good? I mean, There's nothing so good as mercy when you've expected to just be chastised and you got mercy. That's what what God does. And so the incredible, incredible extension of God upon us, Jesus promises that those who are most likely to extend mercy are are also the ones who are going to receive mercy. That's the heart attitude. Blessed are the merciful It leads to the pure in heart. To be pure in heart means to simply be sincere without hypocrisy. And the first audience that Jesus preached to would have understood this to be pure in heart from ceremonial things and moral things, but he's saying, no, this is purity of heart, not just doing the right thing outwardly. And so Jesus qualifies it by adding the words in heart. Both publicly and privately, it's like being transparent before God, living quorum Deo before the face of God. People growing in this virtue have allowed the Holy Spirit, like Psalm 139, 23, David says, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, the pure in heart are undefiled not only by their evil, but also by their virtues. What a good statement. You see, the pure in heart don't just keep back the evils of the flesh and the devil and the world, 
but also the virtues that sneak in that puff us up with pride. The pure in heart don't get snagged on either. And that beatitude leads to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why does pure in heart lead to being a peacemaker? Because if you don't have purity of heart, you're going to find someone to tangle with. Someone is going to get in your craw. Conflict comes out of an impure heart. And so purity of heart leads naturally to being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And uh, true peacemaking, choose, peacemakers choose to endure suffering rather than inflict it on others. It's a rare quality. Too many, too many people are ready to blame and deflect and even break off friendship instead of being a peacemaker. They're called sons of God because the Son of God was the one who offers us the most clear example of peace. When he came, it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus, in, in whom is the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And as we remember the Lord's table today, we remember that it took Christ's blood to make peace between humans and God. And then finally, the blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may ask how Jesus arrives at being persecuted for righteousness as an attitude for his followers to adorn. And the fact is that peacemaking leads to being persecuted because in simple terms, Jesus teaches us that persecution will be a natural and inevitable clash between two opposing value systems, two worldviews that are in contradiction of each other. You might have expected that if you follow these first seven, you're going to be applauded. If you follow these first seven, you're such a humble, meek, wonderful person, a peacemaker, pure in heart. You should be congratulated. You think that's going to be the end product. Instead, guess what happens? You're persecuted for righteousness sake because you see the very people around you have a distaste in their mouth for what you hunger and thirst for and your life is your life is showing them something convicting them somehow and so notice that Jesus teaches that your sufferings will do will be sometimes due to falsehood spoken against you verse 11 indeed we will see that Jesus seems to acknowledge that the persecution we face is almost a certificate of Christian authenticity. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 12, you're in good company. So if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus says rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. But take care, Christians, because if you're persecuted just because you plant a flag somewhere that Jesus didn't plant a flag, don't play the role of a martyr. There's a lot of people that are professing Christians that can be really goofy. And they think it's all coming against them because of righteousness sake. Maybe not. And so I encourage you, let Jesus be your true north. Let him decide what is righteousness. Let him be your earnest desire. In a moment, we're going to gather at this table of the Lord and partake of this meal in memory of Jesus, what he did at the cross. And I'm going to be encouraging you at home to take 
a moment to go get some bread or juice. And here in the room, if you need to go back and grab one of these little uh, cups with the cellophane and so on. <clears throat> but I want to ask you, I want to tell you that in the Beatitudes are some of the most convicting scripture I've read in all the Bible. Because you look at each of these eight qualities and you can say, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. And that's okay. They reveal how far we fall short, how much we need Jesus. But Paul said in Philippians 2, let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And so let these attitudes be in you. And where you see yourself not measuring up, just bring that to Jesus this morning before you partake of the meal. Just say, Lord, I confess my pride. I'm not poor in spirit. I'm self-righteous. I'm not grieving over my sin. I'm not very meek. Lord, I'm not hungering after your righteousness. Lord, I don't extend mercy to the other people that are around me. Just confess it. Because if you can do that, then you're probably in agreement with all eight. And you're eligible to come to this table. But I want to say also that if you in your spirit don't agree with these things of Jesus, just don't partake. Because this is the things that Jesus says are requirement for his table. Wait upon you now. Brothers and sisters, uh, as you stay standing, Jesus Christ came and the Bible says that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after he broke it, he said, this is my body given for you. Let us also give thanks for the bread and for the cup. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. <clears throat> Lord, we come to this table not because we deserve it to, not because we have something to, to put on the table. It's not a potluck. Lord, you the host have invited us because you've provided everything, this eight course banquet. And Lord, we're saying to you in partaking of this, we're saying, Lord, we agree. We agree, we say yes. We say yes to you. Yes, Lord, help us to be poor in spirit. Yes, Lord, help me to mourn my sin. Yes, Lord, help me to be meek, Lord. Help me to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Yes, Lord, I want to be merciful because I've received mercy. Yes, Lord, make me pure in heart. Yes, Lord, I want to be a peacemaker. Yes, Lord, I will be persecuted as I follow you, and I'm ready. Oh, God, would you receive our praise today for your goodness. And we thank you for the bread that reminds us of your broken body at Calvary, and we thank you for the cup that reminds us of the blood that you shed to make peace with you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. Take now of the bread and be thankful. And take now of the cup representing the blood of Jesus and be thankful.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May God bless you. Amen. Lord Jesus, you sought us and you've bought us. You've made us yours and we are yours now. And I thank you that you have saved us and given us your spirit so that we can grow in these ways that you have taught us this morning. Please bless each one as we go from here. And may you be praised in your name. Amen. Have a great day, everybody.